Amen. You may be seated and go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 73, Psalm chapter 73. As you're turning there, I'm sure that you've had conversation with somebody as you're sharing the gospel with them or you tell them that you are a believer and they ask you, how could you follow God and follow the Bible when there are so many contradictions in the Bible? There's so many places where the Bible disagrees with itself. I don't know if you've had that experience. I've had that experience multiple times, and this is usually the way that I respond to that. Number one, I, I say, where are the contradictions? Because if there are contradictions in the Bible, I want to know what they are. Thus far, I haven't seen any, but I want to know what they are. So I ask, can you tell me where the contradictions are? Usually, there isn't an answer. Um, but if there is an answer, the second question that I ask is, just wondering, you know, graciously and compassionately, have you ever read the whole Bible? Because there might be a misunderstanding about how a part fits into another if you haven't read the entirety of the Bible. You haven't finished the whole Bible. You haven't seen the whole storyline of the Bible. Thirdly, I will always walk somebody, when they're struggling with things that the Bible has to say, I will always walk them through my uh, list test. You know, just write out, I'll ask them, write out for me what it is that you find difficult to believe about the Bible. Write it down. Let me see them. And let's take six months to answer all of them. Usually there's good objections. There's good questions that are raised about the Bible. And so I say, let's go through each of them. And then I ask them, if, if I were to be able to answer all of these questions that you have about the Bible effectively and efficiently for you, that made sense that you agreed with, would you become a Christian? And usually the answer is, mm, I don't know. I, I'd, still, I'd still have to do some thinking. So so when somebody asks about the contradictions in the Bible, you can really see sometimes that's a smokescreen to their own love for their sin and not wanting to give up their autonomy to the Lord and surrendering to Him. But sometimes we struggle with contradictions in a different way. Maybe you're here this morning and you struggle because maybe you think there are contradictions in the Bible, and if so, I'd love to talk with you, but I think the majority of us would say that's not the struggle that we have. The struggle that we have is the contradictions that we see with the Bible and life. The Bible says this is how life's supposed to go, and then we see life not doing what the Bible says it's supposed to do. That's where I think we struggle with the contradictions that we see. What do we do in these moments that are so challenging, where we see a contradiction with what God said would happen in my life, and what's actually happening in my life. The beautiful reality is that's the exact question that Psalm 73 is going to try and answer this morning. That's the whole reason why Asaph wrote this psalm. So Psalm 73, let's read it together and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Psalm 73, you can see the superscription. It's a psalm of Asaph. And he writes this. Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped because I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride's a necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. 
They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They have increased their wealth, so surely in vain I've kept my own heart pure and washed my hands in innocence because I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it, would tr it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Father, this psalm is so rich. It's so magnificent. It's so profound. And we don't have enough time to really plumb its depths the way that it should be done. But Father, with the time that we have, we, we ask that you would work in our hearts. Uh, we see the the culture around us, we see the landscape around us, we see that just like Asaph, we look around and we, we don't see the wicked losing and the righteous winning. And that's why Asaph wrote this psalm, to instruct our hearts today and to guard our hearts for tomorrow. So just like Samuel, we would say to you this morning, speak, Lord, for your servants listening. We are here ready to hear what you would say to us this morning from your word. And we want to do whatever you tell us to do. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law this morning. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? If God is in control of this world, shouldn't everything that the wicked attempt fail. We see the exact opposite. Usually, the wicked get rich while missionaries lack funding to go to the field. A young mom dies in a car accident while the drunk driver who hit her walks away without a scratch. A godly wife who loves the Lord is abandoned by her husband. A godly couple longs to have a child but cannot while there are 1.3 million abortions being performed in the U.S. annually. A student cheats on an exam and gets an A. 
while the one who studied all night gets a C. You have integrity at your job and you get passed over for a promotion, but your dishonest co-worker gets the job. The stories go on and on and on. And they don't just happen extra-biblically outside the Bible. They are in the Bible too. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1, Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? God, what are you doing? The wicked are prospering. The righteous are losing. What's going on? There's so many places in the Bible where this cry goes before the Lord, but there's just no place quite like Psalm 73. It just takes us higher and deeper and further than any other passage on this issue. You can see Asaph is the author. There's at least four different Asaphs in the Bible. This one is the uh, brother of Haman, uh, the son of Berechiah. Uh, he's appointed as a singer in the tabernacle and in the temple. And he was designated as the leader of the choral music, as the choir director. He authored 12 psalms, Psalm 50 and then Psalm 73 to Psalm 83. And this psalm opens up book number three in the Psalter. And though its background is uncertain, though its circumstances are unknown, and though we know very little about the author, we do know this. Asaph is honest. He's honest with what he's struggling with. He's honest with what he's dealing with. And therefore, he gives us a profound psalm that Alex Motier says, uh, Psalm 73 contains one of the most rhapsodic and uplifting passages in the whole Psalter. And indeed, there is hardly need for anything beyond letting their rhythms and sentiments sink into our souls. It just preaches itself. Asaph knew other songs that had been written. Asaph knew Psalm 1. The, the blessed man is the one who lives according to the word of God. The wicked will not prosper. And then he sees life not going the way that Psalm 1 says it's going to go. The good guys are losing. The bad guys are winning. What are we supposed to do? This morning, we're going to see three perspectives that Psalm 73 gives us. We must have these perspectives if we're going to trust God and follow him. Three perspectives on life that we must have as we trust and follow God. Perspective number one is found in verses 1 through 14. And I would say it this way. In the short term, this is the perspective we need to have. In the short term, things might not be fair. In the short term, things aren't always going to be fair. You can see verse 1. He starts by saying, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. The goodness of God is the heart of of Christianity. So he starts by saying, God is good. I know that. Psalm 25, verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Psalm 34, verse 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 86, verse 5, you, O Lord, are good. You're ready to forgive. Psalm 107, verse 1, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his loving kindness endures forever. So the psalmist says, God, you are good and you give goodness to your people. You're good to those who are your people, particularly to Israel. And you're also good to anybody outside of Israel who's pure in heart. These are not people who are perfect. These are people who follow God, who don't keep the, the rules in perfection, but are progressing in their sanctification. They have that righteousness about them that they're 
pursuing the Lord. They're following God's path. They're obeying him as a habitual practice of their lives. So he starts there. By the way, this is instructive right off the bat to how we view life. If you have a question about life, it needs to go through the lens of the goodness of God. It needs to go through the lens. Whenever you're struggling with any difficulty in life, it needs to go through the lens of God is good, and now let me address this issue. Spurgeon said it this way. Oh God, however perplexed I may be, may I never speak ill of thee. If I cannot understand thee, let me never cease to believe in thee. It must be so. It cannot be otherwise because thou art good. I love that. If I can't understand you, let me keep believing in you. And it can't be any other way than that because you're good. So I can't stop believing in you because you're good. But just because Asaph believes the right thing about the goodness of God, he has said the right thing and he believes the right thing. But just because he believes the right thing doesn't mean he's not going to struggle with real life problems. And I think that's an encouragement to our hearts. You can believe the right things and still have struggles. And so he says, I know you're good and you, you are good, you're holy, and you're good to those who are pure in heart. But, verse 2, as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps almost slipped. Why? He tells us exactly right off the bat why he's struggling so much. Verse 3, because I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why is he struggling? Why is he frustrated? What's the difficulty here? It's easy. It's summed up in one word. He's envious. He's envious. He's envious of the arrogant. He's envious of the boastful. His real problem was that he coveted what the wicked were experiencing. Envy always criticizes God. It questions his sovereign providence. It says, surely we deserve more than we have been given. And envy always, you can take this all the way to the bank, Envy always leads to inaccurate conclusions. And so his envy of the wicked and the arrogant brings him to a place where he has an inaccurate conclusion on what's happening. Why is he envious? He sees their prosperity, verse 3. Verse 4, there's no pain in their death. That's not true, but that's how he's seeing things because he's struggling with this envy. But he sees, he thinks... That non-believers die with ease. They don't really care about anything. They're totally fine. Their body is fat. That means they have plenty, right? Not that they're somehow unhealthy, but that they're so healthy that they have so much food, they have so much that they can just eat, and they have all the nourishment and nutrition that they need. They're not in trouble like other men. They're not plagued like other people, like mankind. And because of that, pride is their necklace. They just go around saying, look at how easy I have it. Look at how easy life is for me. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. Now we've gone from just they have enough food, but just every part of them is so satisfied that their eyes are bulging. Whatever they see and they want, they get it. The imaginations of their heart run riot. So whatever they see and want, they get it. Whatever they desire to do, they do it. They mock, wildly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They look down on believers. They say, look at us. Our life is so easy. You claim to have it good with God. And our life is better than yours. They've set their mouth against the heavens. So not only do they, they tell believers, hey, we're better than you. We've got it better than you. But they also so say to God, setting their mouths against the heavens, parading throughout the earth, God, who are you? You're nobody. Look at verse 10. Because of how vocal they are and because of what is going on in their lives, 
God's people, verse 10 is a hard verse to translate, but God's people return back to them. So get the picture in your mind, right? Somebody is a non-believer. They start to follow after God, and then they see what's going on with the wicked, and they think, you know what? I made a bad decision. I'm going to go back to the wicked. And they drink the waters of abundance. The non-believers say, how does God know? There's no knowledge with the Most High. They're saying he's, he's supposed to be this transcendent God, and he doesn't know what's going on. I've gotten away with it. Behold, these are the wicked. This is his summation of everything that the wicked do. Here's the wicked. They're always at ease. They've increased in wealth. Nothing, ever, nothing bad ever happens to them. And everything bad always happens to me. Verse 13. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. I've followed after God. I have buffeted my body like Paul talks about. I've made it my slave. I've pursued righteousness and for no reason whatsoever. It's all been for nothing. It's all been for nothing. I've washed my hands in innocence. I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Psalm 1 that Asaph knew says the wicked don't prosper, the righteous do. The wicked are destroyed and the righteous prevail. Remember the end of that psalm, right? The wicked are driven away like chaff in the wind. Just a, a little breeze just throws them away. And here in Psalm 73, Asaph's looking at the wicked going, they aren't looking too chaffy here, right? They don't, they don't look like they're blown away. He's having a problem. This is why. He's envious. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Covetousness is idolatry. Our desire for whatever increases our satisfaction, uh, our, our desire for, for something else uh, starts to decrease our satisfaction in God. And our desire for God, if it increases, it decreases our satisfaction and need for anything else. Where Asaph is, is right in the middle. He's looking at the wicked. He's desiring what they have, and therefore his desire for God is decreasing. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. What he covets, even if he got it, he wouldn't be satisfied. And so he says, I'm struggling. I love verses 13 and 14. I love how honest they are. I don't know if you've ever been there. This is a prayer He's going to end up saying, I'm glad I didn't say that out loud. <laughs> Little did Asaph know we were going to have it in our Bibles 2,000 years later. But he says, man, I'm glad I didn't say that out loud. This is a prayer to you, God. I'm glad I didn't say this. Because if I had, bad things would have happened. But here he's praying to God, and he writes this beautiful prayer down as an encouragement to you and to me. Because I think we've all been in places like Asaph where we start praying and we realize, man, I can't believe what I'm saying. I know that's wrong. It's how I feel. God, what do I do? That's where Asaph is. He's in kind of that middle of lament. God, I don't get this and I'm struggling. I hope you would find that to be an encouragement. There's a difference clearly between doubt and unbelief. What Asaph is struggling with is not unbelief. He's struggling with the dilemma of doubt. And that's exactly what happens when we take our eyes off of heaven and put them on the circumstances around us in this world. When we stop telling ourselves truth, this is exactly what happens. We have a spiritual myopic vision. We can only see what we don't have. Looks like the wicked are being blessed. The righteous are being cursed. Whether it's two months that it goes on like this, two years that it goes on like this, or 22 years that it goes on like this. You need to know, point number one, and you need to expect that in the short term, 
this is how life is going to go. You see, if you have that perspective and you expect these things to happen, that life's not going to be completely fair as we live it out, then these things won't surprise you. Expect it. Expect a sense of unfairness. Expect suffering. Expect that this world isn't going to be right. Several years ago, there was a missionary who was on furlough going to different countries where Christians were severely persecuted and where Christianity was illegal. In underground churches and behind closed doors, he interviewed pastors and churchgoers, and he listened to their incredible testimonies of bold and courageous faith in the face of torture and death. All the stories that he kept hearing from these pastors and these Christians were so riveting that he was asking all these pastors, why are you not writing these things down? Why don't you put this into a book? This would be so encouraging. These stories are incredible. He says this, Why haven't you collected these stories into a book? Believers around the world ought to hear what you have been telling me. Your stories are amazing. They're inspiring testimonies. I've never heard anything like them. And in response, an older pastor reached out his shoulder and he said, Son, when did you stop reading your Bible? All of our stories are in the Bible. God's already written them all down. Why would we bother writing books to tell our stories when God's already told his story? If you would just read the Bible, you would see that our stories are there. When did you stop reading your Bible? They expected it. They knew this is what's going to happen. Another conversation with another pastor followed the same line of questioning. The missionary visiting these countries was amazed by their testimonies and asked them why they weren't writing them down for others to read. And in response, an older pastor said, I, have understand, I understand that you have sons, Nick. Is that true? And it was true, and the pastor continued, Tell me, Nick, how many times have you awoken your sons before dawn and brought them to a window like this one that faces east and said to them, Boys, watch carefully. This morning you're going to see the sun come up in the east. It's going to happen in just a few more minutes. Get ready now, boys. How many times have you done that with your sons? Well, the missionary chuckled, I've never done that. If I ever did that, my boys would think that I was crazy. The sun always comes up in the east, and it always happens every morning. The old man nodded and smiled. The missionary interviewing him didn't really understand the point. So the old man said, Nick, that's why we don't make books and movies out of the stories that we're telling you. For us, persecution is like the sun coming up in the east. It happens all the time. This is the way things are. There's nothing unusual or unexpected about it. Persecution for our faith has always been and probably always will be a normal part of our lives. They expect it. If I was preaching this sermon to them, <laughs> I could skip point number one, right? They expect life to not be fair. And brothers and sisters, I think this is our time to figure out, do we expect it? Right? We look at the world around us. We see in our country that morality is going away, that the culture is shifting very quickly. We see these things, but we shouldn't be surprised by it. We shouldn't be surprised by suffering that's going to happen. We shouldn't be taken aback by it. We should expect it. We should expect it. That's the first perspective that we have to have if we're going to follow God and trust in him. The second perspective is found in verses 15 through 20. Point number two, in the long term, so we've got the short term, life's not going to be fair, but in the long term, justice will prevail. In the long term, God's justice will be done. So we've got the short term. You have to have the perspective in the short term. Things aren't going to be fair. 
But you must have the perspective that in the long run, God will balance the scales. In the long run, justice will prevail. This is where at the end of this section, at the end of verse 14, knowing the short term that life's not going to be fair, it would be very easy for Asaph to say, I'm going to have a defeatist attitude here. Life's going to stink. It's not going to get any better. The bad guys are going to win. The good guys are going to lose. We might as well just prepare for trouble and get on with life. But that's not where he goes. He doesn't just stop with the short term. And that's why, like we talked about last week with Psalm 23, we need to have biblical optimism. Yes, the short term is going to be difficult. We should expect that. But the long run, oh, every day for a believer, we have hope that it's going to be better. Our future is brighter tomorrow than, it's to, than it is today. And that's what he says. Verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, the thus, the predicate of that word in verse 13 is um, that there's no reason to be pure or righteous. If I had said those things, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I would have lied to them because I would have only given them a half truth. Some of it's not even true. When I pondered to understand this, all of this is troublesome in my sight. Not only my view of the wicked, but how I almost betrayed the generation of God's people. All of this is troublesome until I came into the sanctuary of God. So he's very glad that he didn't say everything that he was thinking. And then something changes. Verse 17, everything switches on that little word, until. What a great word, until. Until what? He came into the house of God. Worship before the Lord, whether it's through the preaching of God's word, through the singing of God's word, worship before the Lord is where we are able to see things as they truly are. Focus our attention on God. Shift the paradigm, recalibrate our focus to a God-centered view. The word of God changes his thinking and he sees things correctly for what they really are. How do we do that? We gather together as the church. This is what Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says. We need to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembly. We need to gather together. Now, I know that there are some you know, old adages that talk about you know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian, like going to In-N-Out doesn't make you a hamburger, right? You guys have heard that before? That's true. Just being here doesn't make you a Christian. But I think we, we emphasize that so much that we flip it to, to then say, if you are a Christian, you don't have to go to church. That's not true either. Yes, sitting in this library does not make you a believer. But if you are a believer, you must be plugged into a church. You have to be involved in accountability, fellowship. You have to be under the word of God, hearing the word of God preached, reading the word of God together, praying the word of God, singing the word of God. You must do those things. If you don't, you're going to live life like Asaph in those first couple of verses. And if you do, if you're with believers... They'll hold you up, they'll help you, they'll encourage you, they'll help recalibrate. So he says, I perceive their end. I came to the sanctuary of God, I heard the truth, and there, verse 17, I perceived their end. And I love this. So at the beginning, verse 2, he says, I was about to fall. Verse 18, they actually fall. I was about to fall, but God, you held on to me. I didn't ultimately fall, but God, you let them go. You let them slip. John chapter 10, verse 28, if you are a sheep 
following God, like we talked about last week in Psalm 23, God holds you in his hand, and he's never going to let you go, and nobody can snatch you out of his hand. But for a non-believer, surely, verse 18, you've set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. It might look like or feel like, or you might think that God is asleep somewhere. And Asaph says, no, you do the work of leading them to their destruction. You cast them down. They're destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. So I thought that the wicked had it easy, but when I perceive their end, I know that they don't. They don't have it easy. Verse 19, this is the moment coming for all non-believers, being destroyed in a moment. There is no solution for your sins apart from the intervention of Jesus redeeming you, just like we sang, Rock of Ages. Unless Jesus does the work of saving you, you are going to live out, verse 19, of being destroyed in a moment. So he says, okay, I, I know their end. In the long run, justice prevails, so I know it's not good to be wicked. What about being righteous? Verse 21, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. This is how he was struggling in his, his own heart. But then he says this, verse 23, and these, these verses are some of the most precious verses in the Bible. Nevertheless, even though I was pierced within, I was senseless, I was ignorant, and I was a beast before you. Even though those were true about me, I am continually with you, and you've taken hold of my right hand. There are amazing benefits of following the Lord. So he's going to say there are some absolutely terrifying realities for the non-believers in the long run, but for believers, there's benefits both in the long run and now. Benefit number one you, I, I am continually with you. I love that. That God is continually with me, that's God's presence, right? He's always with me. But that I am continually with him in a reconciled relationship, that's peace. That's why he says it. Even though I'm senseless and ignorant and like a beast before you, nevertheless, we still have peace in our relationship. I'm reconciled to you. So there's peace. Verse 24, the second blessing of following the Lord and being one of his children. Not only, number one, he cares for you, but number two, he counsels you. Verse 24, with your counsel, you will guide me. He'll guide you. He'll direct you through his word. He doesn't leave you to your own opinions, your own desires. He'll guide you. He'll counsel you. So he cares for you. In the here and now, he counsels you. A third benefit in the middle of verse 24, afterwards you will receive me to glory. You will receive me to glory. This is confidence, right? This is hope, assurance, and confidence. He gives us his amazing care. He gives us his amazing counsel, and he gives us the most amazing otherworldly confidence that we could possibly have. It is only the Bible that dares to say the word afterwards. He says, you're going to counsel me and guide me, and after that, when I die, you're going to receive me to glory. Only the Bible dares to say that word afterwards. Back in the book that I was quoting earlier of this missionary going around into the persecuted world of the persecuted church, he 
had several sons, and one of his sons at the age of 16 passed away while they were in uh, Somalia. And they had a funeral for his son, and there were several Muslims that were at the funeral. And one of the Muslims, who was a good friend of this missionary, said this, There is one thing I don't understand about that funeral. Nick and Ruth buried Timothy, a son that they loved with all of their hearts. And during the service, many people were talking about Tim. People were singing. People were crying. But everyone seemed to know that Tim was in paradise. Why can't we Muslims know that our loved ones are in paradise when they die? Why is it that only these followers of Jesus know exactly where they are going after death? We bury our people, we weep, we walk away, and we don't know where our loved ones are. Brothers and sisters, there are billions of people in the world that don't know where their loved ones are going when they die. And this book in front of us this morning says, we know that after we die, we're received into glory. How do we know that? With confident assurance. We know it not because of any work that we could possibly do to earn heaven's gates opening for us. We know it because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. That's why he's the lamb who is worthy to receive all glory and honor and power and praise and dominion and authority forever. Because he made the way for us to know with assurance that after we die, we will be with him in glory. That's why the Bible says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Some of you who went away on vacation for Christmas, maybe you went back, you know, as the song says, home for the holidays, right? You go home for the holidays. I hear people say often, Parents, specifically, when their grown children come back home, and they say, isn't it good that you can be home for the holidays? Isn't it wonderful that they're coming home to be with us? Isn't it wonderful? And I just, I have to believe that in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have to be saying, whenever a saint is about ready to pass away, isn't it wonderful that they're coming home? They're going to be with us. They're coming home. That's what Jesus prays for in John 17, that they would be with me where I am so that they may see your glory. Remember Stephen, the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts. Remember, as he's being stoned to death, he opens his eyes and he sees heaven being opened. And do you remember what he says? Remember his words? He says this, I see Jesus standing in heaven. We don't see that word anywhere else regarding Jesus in heaven. He's always sitting because his job is done. It is finished. He has no more work left to do, so he can sit down because he's finished it all. But when one of his saints, when one of his sons or daughters is about ready to enter heaven, he stands up to greet them. He stands up to say, welcome home. Well done. Afterwards, you will receive me into glory. If you know this reality, that after you die, you'll be received into glory, this changes everything. This changes everything. You have no fear of death anymore whatsoever. This changes everything. 
What does this kind of faith produce in the life of a believer? It produces the kind of faith, uh, I want to quote from this book one more time that I read recently, uh, just this last week. There was a Ukrainian believer whose father had been imprisoned for being a pastor in Ukraine. And he recounted the story of his father being taken and arrested. And he said this, I remember the day like it was yesterday. My father put his arms around me and my sister and my mother, my brother and guided us into the kitchen to sit down around the table where he could talk with us. My mama was crying, so I knew something was wrong. Papa didn't look at her because he was talking directly to us. And he said this, Chilton, you know, I'm the pastor of our church. That's what God has called me to do, to tell others about him. I've learned that the communist forces will come tomorrow to arrest me. They will put me in prison because they want me to stop preaching about Jesus. But I cannot stop doing that because I must obey God. I will miss you very much, but I will trust God to watch over you while I'm gone. His son said he hugged each one of us, and then he said this. All around this part of the country, the authorities are rounding up followers of Jesus and demanding that they deny their faith. Sometimes when they refuse, the authorities will line up whole families and hang them by the neck until they are dead. I don't want that to happen to our family. So I'm praying that once they put me in prison, they'll leave you and your mother alone. However, and here he paused and he made contact with us, eye contact with us. If I am in prison and I hear that my wife and my children have been hung to death rather than deny Jesus, I will be the most proud man in that prison. That's the confidence that we can have as believers. To say, to live is Christ and death is gain. Who cares if I die? Because afterwards I will be received to glory. We have the, the care of our God, verse 23. We have the counsel of our God, verse 24. We have the confidence Verse 24 of our God receiving us to glory. And then we have comfort. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. I have you. I don't need anything else. Remember, he had been envious of everything that the wicked had and what they were doing. And now he says, if I have you and nothing else, I'm, I'm set. No longer envious, completely satisfied in Christ. So God gives us care, counsel, confidence, and comfort all in the person and work of Jesus. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God's the portion, the strength of my heart, my portion forever. I might die, and that's okay, because I have God. I have everything I need. I have God. Charles Wesley, that great hymn writer who wrote, uh, And Can It Be, when he was lying on his deathbed in March of 1788, meditated on Psalm 73, Specifically, this part where he says, uh, my strength of my heart, my portion will fail, but uh, you are the, the strength of my life. You are everything that I need. He called his wife to his bedside, and he dictated this to his wife. In age and feebleness extreme, what shall a sinful wor worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, 
strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch a smile from thee and drop into eternity? That's what he wanted. Oh, my life may fail, and it ultimately will. But if I have God, I have everything that I need. I have everything that I need. Think about the wicked. Verse 27, behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. So think about the wicked now. Think about their death. Think about how enslaved to the fear of death they are. They don't have direction. They don't have comfort. They don't have confidence in the future. They have nothing. You and I, we have everything. We have the same faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. Do you remember them before King Nebuchadnezzar when he says, you have to bow down to this idol or else I'm going to kill you? And they say, look, God can save us. And even if he doesn't, we're still not going to obey you. Even if you kill us, we're fine because we have God. We have God. John Donne, a Puritan author, says, As he that fears God fears nothing else, so he that sees God sees nothing else. I've just got God. That's all I need. I have him. And if you know that satisfaction, then you'll live out verse 28. As for me, the nearness of God is my good, and I have made the Lord God my refuge. I'm going to run to him, find refuge in him, and I'm going to tell of his works. He begins this psalm by saying, I'm struggling to believe it's even worth following you. And he ends this psalm as an evangelist. I'm going to tell everybody that it's worth it. Jesus is worth it. So what about you this morning? You may be here listening to this sermon and trying to figure out where you fit. Who do you identify with? I, I think that there's three categories of people here in this psalm. There are righteous people that are pursuing the Lord with everything that they've got, kind of the way that Asaph ends, right? Just, he's my refuge, he's everything. I love him, I'm following him, and I'm telling everybody about him. And then there's the wicked who say, you know what? I don't think following God is worth it. I don't really even know if there is a God. And I definitely think that his ways don't really matter. I'm going to do it my way. And then there's that middle group. It's right in between. They want to follow the Lord, but they're struggling with maybe the righteous are losing and the wicked are winning and I should be on the wicked side's team. Maybe, maybe the wicked actually do have it right. Where are you this morning? Do you identify with Asaph in the beginning? Do you identify with Asaph at the end? The good news is it's all one person. So if you're identifying with Asaph at the beginning saying, I don't even know if it's worth following God. I don't even know if he's worth it. Even today, you could come to a place where you're Asaph at the end of the psalm. And you can say, oh, it's worth it. I know it's worth it. If you're here this morning and you don't believe God at all, you don't follow him at all, you don't really care about what he has said at all, I would plead with you, listen to what Asaph says. You've heard your ending. You've heard that sin brings sorrow, not only in this life, but also in the long run. It brings destruction in the long run. So I would end with the final point. The reality that we have before us in the short term, number one, the perspective that we must have in the short term is life's not going to be fair. We need to expect that. We need to anticipate that. Number two, in the long run, God, in his justice, will prevail and win the day. And with him, all of those who place their trust in him. So in the long run, your future is secure. But here, that last stanza, the nearness of my God is my good. 
I have him. I don't need anything else. Point number three, the perspective that we must have is that in both the short term and the long term, no matter what you're looking at, following God always brings blessing. Always. You must believe that with all of your heart. Following the Lord always brings blessing. It always brings satisfaction. Just think of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We'll end here. Remember that that parable? A rich man doesn't follow God. You have Lazarus who follows the Lord. The rich man dies. He has everything his heart desires. He dies and he goes to hell. Lazarus, who has nothing, right? You remember the dogs are sitting uh, by him as he's begging for bread and money and they're licking his wounds and his sores. And the rich man dies and goes to hell. Lazarus dies and goes to heaven. And in hell, the rich man says, is there any way that I could even just have a, a drop of water placed on my tongue? And Abraham says, that's not possible. Think of that parable. Who was poor and who was rich? Who had hope and who had despair? Who suffered and who had peace? Who was honored and who was humiliated? And the answer to that question depends on your perspective, right? If you're looking at this life, well, the, the rich man was rich. He had hope. He never suffered. He had peace, and he was honored. Lazarus was the one who was poor, was in despair, was suffering, and was humiliated. But this life is so short, and in the blink of an eye, their roles reversed for all of eternity. Who's the rich man now? It's Lazarus. Who has hope now? It's Lazarus. Who's at peace now? It's Lazarus. Who's honored and exalted now? It's Lazarus. And now that rich man is poor. That rich man has despair. That rich man is suffering. And that rich man is humiliated. So brothers and sisters, present realities are not ultimate realities. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word that is so profound. It is so clear it is so honest. This is exactly where we live. God, is it even worth it to follow you? And Asaph ends by saying, yes, it is. Father, we want to tell of your works the way that Asaph did. We want to tell of your works even now as we sing. We are going to live out the ending of Psalm 73 as we tell of your works with one another. And as we do this, God, may we do it knowing and believing that present realities are not ultimate realities. In the short term, things are not going to go well. We know that. We expect it. In the long run, we know you win and justice will prevail. And so both in the short term and the long term, both, both in the short run and the long run, both in now and in the future, we want to say with such great conviction of heart, that following you is always the best option. And it always brings blessing, even if we can't see it, even if we can't feel it. And it always, always, always brings satisfaction. Help us to find our satisfaction in you as we sing now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us. We're going to sing Great is Thy Faithfulness. <laughs>